You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, so good to see you. Ask you to please take your Bibles. You can go to Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your device or one of the pew Bibles there on the ground next to you. And you can go to page 1032. We're back in our study in the book of Galatians, where we're looking at God's radical grace for us. And to kind of catch you up, or maybe you're not, if you haven't been here, or you have forgotten, or maybe you're new to the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to churches in the area of Galatia, which is now modern day Turkey. And what's happening is these churches are being attacked. And they're being attacked by false teachers that are saying that these People, these Galatians, they must be circumcised. They must keep the Jewish law. They must keep the Jewish dress. They must do the Jewish diet and all these things, even though they aren't Jewish. So don't let that get lost on you. These are Gentile, non-Jewish people, and they are teaching them that if you want to be saved, you got to act like Jews. You got to become Jewish. These false teachers are saying, yes, you, you need Jesus, but you also, you also need this. And this causes Paul to erupt. This is the most fiery letter he writes in the New Testament. He gets in a fight. And listen, sometimes churches fight about really petty, dumb things. We know that. But we don't have time for that. There are too many real things going on. Some Christians want to just debate and wrangle about with minor matters, but there are some fights we need to have till we win. There are some fights and stances that we must take because the gospel being made visible is on the line. And I will fight those fights all day long. And so did Paul. And so should you. Galatians 2, 1 through 10 shows us what to do when church is war. When church is war, we must fight. So as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word and we begin in 2-1. Paul's catching us up on some autobiographical matters as he's kind of telling a story to fight against the false teachers. And he tells us about another time he went up to Jerusalem, 2-1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now from those recognized as important, what they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. 
when James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. Help us now to know how to fight for your grace, to steward, to to be wise stewards of what has been deposited to us here with radical grace. Help us to fight this good fight now. Help us, King Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I say, if I say John 3.16, you, you probably know what that is. You've seen it or you've seen just those, those words, that word and those letters kind of jumbled together somewhere or on, on a football game being held up by a billboard. And you may have a verse, maybe it's John 3.16, maybe you have a verse that when you hear it, you just get amped and you get excited and you get encouraged and you just get blessed. You know, mine is Galatians 2.20. Maybe yours is Psalm 23, or maybe it's Romans 8.1. I think we should all have a kind of a life verse. And listen, if you're looking for a life verse, something to put on a pillow or to put on reclaimed wood for your living room, I want you to take Galatians 2.3. Galatians 2.3. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Doesn't that bless you? That should minister to you. You should get that tattooed on your forearm if you're into that. Because here's why. Listen, beloved. This verse right here, what it's telling us, if this verse didn't happen, the gospel would have gotten corrupted. Paul is telling us here in Galatians 2, especially verse 3, that when a fight broke out, and a theological fight broke out in the schoolyard in Jerusalem, Paul went toe-to-toe with the false teachers, and he won, and they lost. The gospel won, and legalism lost. Because here's the thing, church. If we are going to make the real gospel recognizable in Tom Ball and beyond, you are going to have to get brave. You're going to have to get bold. This is your sacred stewardship. There will be some dear people in your life, friends, family, fellow Christians, even good church-going folk, and you're gonna have to square up with them at some point. You are in for a spiritual street fight because there is so much legalism in our area. There is so much hypocrisy in our area and so much sham Christianity that you're gonna have to be ready for a loving fight like our brother Paul. We sit here this morning and we must realize we are behind enemy lines. Until glory, we are behind enemy lines. Houston is not a safe haven for Christianity. Your suburb, Tomball, Cypress Spring, the greater Houston area, this is not a safe haven for Christianity. It is a safe haven for kinda Christianity. Our culture loves kinda Christianity. Your workplace loves kind of Christianity where legalism abounds, grace is bubble wrapped. In our area, friends, people are addicted to legalism pills. 
And we got to help them kick the habit. Here's how. We see this from Paul. As he goes toe-to-toe with these Galatian false teachers, he tells us about another time when a church fight broke out. So here's what we have to remember. Look at verse one. Here's what he says what to do when church is war. Don't back down. Verse one. Then after 14 years, he's dovetailing off of a story when he went to Jerusalem in chapter one. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. So he tells us by the time he went to Jerusalem and he brings two guys with him. Look at the guys, Titus and Barnabas. Barnabas is a Jewish man. Titus is a Gentile. Here's why this is really important. What's happening under the surface. Barnabas is Jewish. He's circumcised. Follows the Old Testament law. Had followed it in his life. Titus is a Greek, uncircumcised. What Paul's doing here, Paul's being very crafty. Paul is entrapping a moment. He knows this is a fight. It's coming to a head. You can see this in Acts 15.1, another account where someone stands up and says, you must be circumcised if you want to be saved. This is what is being taught. So Paul now has a private meeting with the church leaders, this closed door backstage discussion. And look at what he says in verse two. I went up according to a revelation. So God told him to go and present to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. And look, but privately to those recognized as leaders. He says, so this is backdoor private meeting between me, Titus, Barnabas, and these church leaders. And he says, and I'm telling them the gospel that I preach. Why? Look at the end of verse two. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. What does that mean? It sounds like Paul is saying, I wanted to make sure I was preaching the right gospel. But that can't be it. That would defeat his whole case that he's been making since chapter one. Because remember, where did Paul learn his gospel? From God. He says, God revealed it to me. No one taught it to me. God taught it to me. So, what he, so it can't be, I want to make sure my gospel's right. It means I want to make sure the Jerusalem apostles are preaching the right gospel. I want to make sure headquarters has not been diluted. I want to make sure Peter, James, and John have not been corrupted by the false teachers and that they're teaching the right gospel too. Because if they're not, I'm running in vain. What does that mean? Because if I'm planting all of these churches in a synagogue influence area, and the headquarters where the temple is, if Jerusalem's been corrupted, then all of my efforts where there's synagogue influence, I've lost. I'm outnumbered. I should move on to other areas where there are no synagogues. So I wanted to make sure I'm not running in vain and planting in all these areas where there are synagogues. I wanna make sure they're teaching the right thing. And Paul finds out I'm not running in vain. The Jerusalem church leaders are rock solid still. Verse three. How do we know that? Because of verse three. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Mic drop. This is a mic drop because this is the exact argument the false teachers are making, that Gentiles, non-Jews, Greeks, You have to be circumcised. You have to do all the Jewish things of the Old Testament. You must fulfill the law. And Paul says, oh yeah, let me tell you a story. I brought my friend Titus, who's a Greek, who has faith in Jesus. And he met Peter. He met James. And he met John. And they didn't push him to get circumcised. Your move. You lost, false teachers. 
Beloved, this verse is so important because it shows us that nothing needs to be added to Jesus for you to be accepted before God. The false teachers are are right in a sense that you have to fulfill the law to be saved. You have to fulfill the law to be saved. Everyone in this room, you have to fulfill the law to be saved. But it's Jesus who fulfills the law for us. Jesus obeyed God's law for us. Jesus met every requirement, every demand, and is sinless before the law for us. And that when you have faith in Jesus, when you believe that he died for you and he died for your sins, forgiving you, and that he rose again from the dead, all of his obedience and all of his perfection and all of his righteousness is now put on you. And you aren't lacking anything. Every Christian in this room has the same amount of Jesus on them. Everyone, every Christian, one one who's been a Christian for 40 years and has read the Bible 40 times and who just can't help, just can't stop Bible verses from coming out of their mouth all the time. Like when you tell them, man, nice weather today, huh? And they go, yeah. And whether I'm at home or away, it's my aim to please them. Okay, it's not the same weather, but I get it. And then the Christian who's newer to the faith, struggling to even make it to church on Sunday, but believes Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the dead for them, they have the same amount of Jesus, the same amount of righteousness on their account, the same level of acceptance before God because all you need is Jesus. But listen, people, there are people who will try to tell you otherwise. Look at verse four. This matter arose, this whole fight broke out, this whole battle, because, verse four, some false brothers. You know what that tells us already? There will be people you will meet that will say they are Christians and they are not. They're false brothers, false sisters. And look what Paul says they do. Look at all this military intense language that Paul uses. These false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy satanic espionage, to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. This whole fight broke out in the first place because false brothers snuck in, wormed their way in, and all of this intense infiltrated our wings, our ranks spying on our freedom. These people acting like we're on the same side, we're family and we're enjoying the blessings of freedom in Christ that we've been freed from sin and Gentiles being free from having to act like Jews and dress like a Jew and eat like a Jew. They spied on us. When Paul says they spied on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, this doesn't mean we're free from obedience. But Paul is teaching we're free from the law but not free from obedience. That's a different battle than the book of Galatians. The book of Jude is a battle of false teachers saying, you don't have to obey. You can do whatever you want. You can sin and it doesn't matter. That's what's happening in the book of Jude. Look at the similarities. For some people, Jude says, who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. Galatians says they've snuck in infiltrated, spying on us. These false teachers in Jude came in by stealth and they're ungodly. 
turning the grace of our God into sensuality. You can do whatever you want. You can sin. It doesn't matter. Grace will abound. Who cares? You don't have to obey what the Bible says. Denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. So these are two battles that we face. License, you can do whatever you want, and legalism. License says, don't do this. It doesn't matter when it really does. When the New Testament calls for this obedience. Legalism says, do this. It matters when it really doesn't. When the Bible doesn't, when God doesn't ask that of you in Christ. Our obedience now, friends, our obedience to God now is because we live with Jesus. We're not earning anything from God. We're not earning anything from Jesus. It's because we are with Jesus. We're united to him, being transformed into his likeness, filled with his spirit. So when Paul says we've been, the freedom we have in Christ, this is the freedom you have for trying to meet the law to be accepted by God. You don't have to obey the law to be accepted by God because you've been accepted by God in Christ. Paul says these brothers, though, they're shams, double agents. They only were around us to spy on us and then to go back and tell the gang of false teachers what we're doing. That Paul is teaching, you're free from the law because you're free in Christ. You don't have to accept, you don't have to be accepted by God on your obedience, but on Christ's obedience. Because friends, Jesus sets us free from us trying to save ourselves. But legalism locks you back into the asylum of self-salvation. Jesus sets you free from trying to earn God's acceptance. Legalism, doing this, or, or if you want to be a real Christian, adding to faith alone and Christ alone puts us back in the labor camp of works. And we must know legalism happens in two ways. Two different ways legalism happens. Jesus plus something is, that's how you're saved. That's old legalism. You got to be circumcised. You got to follow the diet. You have to speak in tongues. You, you have to uh, be baptized. That's old legalism. But new legalism, this is, this is our area, and this is a lot more difficult to fight. This new legalism, Jesus plus something is how you're more righteous. Jesus plus something is how, I mean, you get to a new level of Christianity. Jesus plus this thing, this is how you're a real Christian. This is how you're really mature. This is how you care about holiness. Both of these are legalistic. Both of them are satanic. Both of them we must fight. Both of them we do not back down from. You know, friends, we don't sing, Jesus paid some of it. Now it's my turn. We don't sing that. He paid it all. There's nothing to add. We are saved by faith in Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrection alone. And you just believe that's the gospel. But this second one, Jesus plus something that, that unlocks your Christian potential. You want to be a real Christian? You want to hit that next step, that next stride? You do this. You, want really, you really want God to bless you? You got to do this. You all need to hear today. You don't have to score any points with God. God is fully pleased with you because of Christ. You don't have to homeschool. You don't have to be a stay-at-home mom. You don't have to public school. You don't have to do family worship every night. You don't have to be reformed. You don't have to like and read John Piper. You don't have to pray to the saints in heaven. 
You don't have to confess to a priest. You don't have to do the rosary. You don't have to pray to Mary. We must fight old legalism and new legalism. We must fight them both as Paul did in verse five. Look at what he says. But we did not give up. We did not give up and submit to these people. That's really key. See, false teachers want you to submit to them. False brothers want you to submit to them. True brothers, true teachers want you to submit to God and his word. Paul says, we would not give up and submit to these people even for a moment, not one second. I gripped my teeth and dug in my heels and I went face to face with them. And look at what he says, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Paul says, I wouldn't entertain a bloated gospel. We don't need a gospel fusion. You know that Tex-Mex really is a fusion of foods? And it works. <laughs> and it's glorious. That's a fusion of food. The gospel doesn't need any fusion. A gospel that's fused with anything else, old legalism, new legalism, it's no longer the gospel. It's Christian-ish. It's not Christianity. And you'll hear these teachings. Your friends will hold to them. And they will try to force them on you aggressively or, or passive aggressively, but do not submit to that even for a moment. Do not back down. You must ask yourself right now, where do I base my acceptance before God? Am I accepted by God because of Christ or because of Christ and what I do or by what I don't do? How do you believe you are saved? Is it Christ alone or Christ in your, you know, trying to be a good person? What do you think you have to do, apart from having faith in Christ, that makes you accepted by God? What do you think really makes you a real Christian? In our area, friends, alcohol and homeschooling, these are two of the biggest new legalisms we must face. So I'll tell you about a private meeting that the elders had a few years ago with a husband and wife. And who they are makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. And on one of my birthdays, the elders and our wives, we all went to a winery up in the Conroe area to see a band and to celebrate. And my wife posted a picture on Facebook of us doing the sunset toast, us holding up our wine glasses, and some of us drinking wine, some of us drinking Diet Pepsi, and holding them up in the air. And as she posted it, there were some who were spying on our freedom only to cause us problems. Slandered us, some of the other elders saying we glamorized wine, we have a drinking problem, which isn't true. So we called a meeting and rebuked them and set the record straight. But they advocated for us making it a policy that church employees wouldn't drink alcohol. And I refused. We all refused because it's not in the Bible. Well, the man said, well, it, it's not, but you know, you, there's always what's good and there's what's better, then, then there's what's best. So don't you think it would be best to have this policy? No, I don't. Because God didn't think it'd be best. If he did, it'd be in here. And we all agree that the Bible says we're not to get drunk. No one should argue against that. License argues against that. Christianity says, yeah, we don't get drunk, but drinking alcohol, that's not a sin. And when he saw that we wouldn't budge, 
he suggested, okay, well, let's make a policy about not drinking in the church's zip code. I've never seen zip codes in the New Testament. You can, you know, you can have freedom, but not in this zip code. Behind all of these covert tactics, is that if you, he, what he's really saying is if you wanted to be a mature believer, if you really care about holiness, you really, you really want to be Christ-like, then you'd be like me. You do what's best and be like me. But we did not submit to that satanic teaching even for a moment. So the truth of the gospel will be preserved for you. Look what Paul says next. He says, we did not submit so that, not so, so that we could say, look at my freedom, I can drink Margie's, I'm gonna post it on Instagram. No. So that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel would be preserved. It would have been easier to, to say, fine, we'll make the policy. Save us some late night meetings, save me some emails, save me some stress. Would have been easier to submit to that, but we would have compromised the truth of the gospel we would not be able to make the real gospel recognizable. That Christ, that Jesus, his death and his resurrection and by faith and trust in him alone is what makes us accepted before God. And Jesus alone is what makes us totally righteous. Jesus alone is that simple, that supernatural. And what, when what is optional becomes required, it's legalism. Listen, when what is optional becomes required, it's legalism. I just talked to a guy after the service and he said, you know, we, I was gonna have my wedding at this one church. It's a kind of a Dutch Reformed Baptist church. And I said, you could have your wedding there, um, but just no dancing. I guess King David couldn't have been at the wedding. It's when what's optional becomes required. It's legalism. And here's, what, here's how it has to burrow down into our heart. Don't define yourself by anything else than Christ alone. Sometimes we try to find our joy, try to define ourselves on Jesus plus this. Jesus plus how good of a parent I am. And then your joy goes down when you're still defining yourself that way. Jesus plus how great my marriage is. That's what really makes me righteous and a real Christian. Jesus plus my Bible reading. Listen, the Bible does not say that you have to read the Bible once through every year. Some of, but some of us have chosen year after year to enslave ourselves to that yoke. The Bible says, read it, and we do not live by, by you know, bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we need all of it. It's just not, you gotta get it all in one year. So some of us need to release ourselves from the self-induced shame of never being able to make it past Second Chronicles. And always zipping forward to Philippians. Don't define yourself by your, by your Bible reading, but by the one the Bible points to, Christ. Christ is what defines our lives. Don't submit to any redefinition of righteousness. Don't give in. You will have to fight. That's why the elders, we did that for you. We fought for the next generation. Look at verse, end of verse five. So that the truth of the gospel, of Christ defining us, Christ alone would be preserved for you. Remember, Paul is fighting here in Jerusalem way before he's now fighting here in Galatia. But he says, I did that fight for you, for the next generation, for the future. And when we stood against legalism, it was for you, 
for this moment. Some of you were not even here during that fight the elders had, but we did it for you, for this moment. Listen, church cultures deny the gospel before preaching does. Church cultures deny the gospel before preaching does. I don't know if you, do you get that? The, the culture of a church is the vibe. It's, it's the ecosystem of the church. It's the, the way of life in a church, that matters. You know, I grew up in a hardcore Southern Baptist Reformed church. And it was never taught in the pulpit. It was never taught in a Sunday school class or anything. Uh, maybe it was just me, but I've talked to a lot of other people who grew up Southern Baptist and they're like, yeah, I totally felt that. That if you weren't Baptist, you were weird. And if you weren't Baptist, you may not, have, you may not be a Christian. And I hear chuckles because people are like, yeah, I kind of believe that. No one ever said that, but it was just kind of caught. It was the vibe of the church. It was the ecosystem of the church. And same like, oh, well, we don't dance because, you know, it could lead to something else. It could lead to sin. You know what leads to sin? Living. <laughs> it's always funny about the Baptist churches. We don't dance because that may lead to sin, but we're going to have an ice cream social because gluttony, who cares about that? See, legalism loves to pick and choose our sins too. Legalism always has a underbelly of license underneath. So church cultures can deny the gospel of grace before their preaching does. The way a church lives can betray grace. If we preach grace, but then we're jerks to one another, we betray grace. If we say Jesus alone is what makes us holy, is what makes us susceptible before God, is what makes us real Christians, but then you also have to homeschool. And, and, and you also women can't work outside the home. And also, you know, wine is Satan's spit. That betrays the gospel. We must have, as our friend Ray Ortland says, gospel doctrine and gospel culture, both together. And we do this for you. The truth of the gospel is preserved for you. You know, after those people left our church, it was an upward enjoyment of God's grace. It was wonderful. And I, when I told Ray Orland about, about meetings like that, I told him about people leaving because of fighting with legalism, and he said, you know what you should do? He leaned forward, looked me right in the eye, said, open a bottle. Every generation will have to fight to preserve the truth of the gospel for the next generation. So right now, I'm not always immediately thinking about, okay, how is our church doing this generation? I'm thinking 40 years from now, the next generation of Christians who will be here by God's grace and his mercy at Redeemer Church, that the gospel will be preserved for them because D.A. Carson says, and he's so right, one generation has the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, and the next generation forgets the gospel unless we fight to preserve it together, to make the real gospel recognizable, to make disciples and make much of Jesus, just Jesus, to make much of just Jesus because we unite around him. That's where Paul goes next. We unite around Jesus, not works. We unite around Jesus, not even denominations. We fellowship around pure grace. Look at verse six. Now, from those recognized as important, Paul says these people I met with, what they once were makes no difference to me. I don't care if they were fishermen. I don't care if they were a part of that original three on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. It doesn't matter. God does not show favoritism. But men, humans, we love to show favoritism. We love to accept favoritism. But Paul says, not me. It doesn't matter. 
We're defined by Christ. And look what he says about these people he met with. They added nothing to me. No additives. They heard my preaching. I told them and they didn't pull me aside and say, you know what? You're forgetting circumcision. You're forgetting praying to the saints. You're forgetting to do the rosary. You're forgetting Dave Ramsey's cash envelope system. No additives. You're forgetting thou shalt raise thy hands in worship. You're forgetting thou shalt keep thy hands down in worship. Now, every church culture is so different. I grew up in, in Southern Baptist Church and like no one raised their hands, but there was this one lady. She was always in the back and very, very humble and she would just kind of raise her hand just a little during the singing and people would be like, what's her deal? Show off. Like, like all these, but then sometimes we can be in churches like this or other kind of more kind of expressive churches. Like how come they're not raising their hands? What's up with them? They did not feel it. They don't care about God. Now you should sing, especially white males. You should sing. But this gospel, pure grace, no additives. Our gospel is 100% organic, flesh and blood, no extra, no extra ingredients, 100% Jesus of Nazareth. But these false teachers, they're saying, gotta be circumcised, gotta keep the law. That's what saves. They're adding to Jesus. But Paul says the pillars, Peter, James, and John, verse nine, they acknowledge the grace has been given to me. They added nothing to me. They didn't tell me, you're forgetting this part. But look at verse 10. They asked only, they asked, they didn't demand, they didn't require. They just asked one thing of me, that we would remember the poor, the poor churches in Jerusalem, that we would serve them. And he says, which I had made every effort to do. I was already doing it. You see it in 2 Corinthians. Paul is raising money for the poor churches. Paul says, I'm there. The false teacher's argument is over. They've lost. They keep, the false teachers are appealing to Peter, James, and John. Paul says, they didn't add anything to me. They lost. It's over. It's done. But Paul keeps pounding their argument. Verse seven, instead of adding anything to me, on the contrary, instead of adding, they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised. They affirmed my ministry. They saw God had called me. Verse eight, because the one at work in Peter, since Jesus is at work in Peter for apostleship to the circumcised, since that same one who's at work in him is also at work in me. The same one at work in Peter, Paul says, is also at work in me. You know what that shows us? We're united in Christ. That shows us our churches are united in Christ. Listen, churches aren't competitors. That is a sad development in our area. We are not competitors. If they preach Christ, same team. We are not competitors with Tomah Bible. We're not competitors with Bayou City Fellowship. We're not competitors with any other, you know, church like ours that's preaching Christ. The same team. And you know what that looks like? Verse nine. Since Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and Barnabas all saw they were on the same team, they acknowledged, verse nine, the grace had been given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing we should go to the Gentiles. They agreed, this is your ministry. Take that gospel and go. The right hand of fellowship. You know, basketball players have these elaborate handshakes. Have you ever seen them? And athletes, they're elaborate dances. Football players score a touchdown. These, all these elaborate handshakes and all this kind of stuff that they do. It's a sign of being in. We're together. We're united. The right hand of fellowship, Christian fellowship, is our celebratory handshake. Grace is enough for fellowship. 
every Christian has this in common. We're saved by grace. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your opinions or preferences. We have fellowship in grace. Rockets fans and Warriors fans have fellowship in grace. Even if we're number one and they're number two, we can have fellowship in grace. Aggies and Longhorns can have fellowship in grace. Aggies and LSU Tigers can have fellowship in grace. Jew and Gentile. Black, Hispanic, white, Asian, Indo-European can have fellowship in grace. That's why I love that our Thanksgiving service, Anne, who's from Norway, got up and gave her testimony of Thanksgiving to God. And then Tamara, Sri Lankan, gives her testimony to God's grace. From Norway to Sri Lanka and Tombaugh, Texas. Only Jesus can do this. And some of us, we must face it. This is true too. Republican and Democrat can have fellowship in grace. American, Syrian, American, refugee, rich, poor, fellowship in radical grace. Because only grace can bring us together. Only being made righteous by Jesus can harmonize us. Because we're united in his life, not our opinions. We're united in his life, not our skin color. We're united in his righteousness, not our preferences. And when, when we're united in being sinners and being saved by Jesus, we can't put our noses up to each other and we can't look down on each other because now we're synced together in Christ. So I love also what our sister Kat Andrew said at the Thanksgiving service. She said, I love you all, even though I don't know many of you and it doesn't matter because we are in Christ. Fellowship and circumcision, diets, homeschooling, preferences, not drinking, rosary, those crumble. They won't last. They're not sustainable for eternity. And I've read the book of Revelation. I have not heard the angels singing, worthy are the people who held to the law. Worthy are those who homeschooled. Worthy are those who public schooled. Worthy are those who didn't drink wine. Worthy are the Baptists or the Reformed. Worthy are the white. None of that is in Revelation. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered, who spilled his blood to save us from our sins and to unite every tribe, every nation, every race, and every language in his name, forgiving us and saving us and is alive right now for us. We fellowship around pure grace and grace alone. Accept no additives, accept no alternatives. And if you are looking for a verse to put on Facebook today, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. That's a real good one. It's Christ alone. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that you do not require me to keep the law. I couldn't. I fail every day. But thank you, Jesus, that you kept it for me. That you met what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That God did by sending his own son and human flesh to redeem us from the curse of the law. For it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And that, Jesus, you hung on that cross to free us, to save us from the law's requirements. 
and to bring us into fellowship, into salvation with you and with you alone. And we need nothing else to save us. We need nothing else to make us really righteous. But you and you alone. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.